I'm a sucker for, you know, walking in that neighborhood, narrow streets, wide sidewalks, and a beautiful mix of single family homes, duplexes, fourplexes, maybe a single family home with an ADU in the back. From this to this. This is Livable City, a regular podcast guiding us on a journey to more human places. I'm your host, Jim Hodap. I'm excited you're here to learn, to listen, and to lead. Hey everyone, it's Jim Hodap. Welcome back to another episode of Liberal City. Around this holiday season is a great time to think back on the year and reflect on things like how your year went, what were your highlights, and things that caused you to grow personally. Especially as we close off a decade, it's a good idea to make time to sit and think by yourself. Where do you want to start heading in this next decade? Who do you want to be and who do you want to know? How can you make your neighborhood where you live stronger for the next decade? How am I a part of this change? And if you're not already, what is important to you that you'd like to become a part of in your neighborhood? As I think back on this last year, I'm reflecting on my own journey and the genesis of how I came to care about the city and the neighborhood that I live in so very much. Why do I care so much that the neighborhood that I live in in Chicago increasingly connects real people to each other, or that I'm actually able to be changed by it and help shape it? These are all important things to think about. How will you show up for people and the neighborhood that you live in? Don't do it because you should, but do it because being a part of change is something that makes you come alive. Jacob's a guy with a ton of energy that you'll immediately feel as you listen to this episode, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did having this conversation. I promise Jacob is going to make you laugh a few times and definitely will bring a smile to your face. Now on to the conversation. Jacob, uh, how did you become interested in cities and caring about the finer details of them? Man, Jim, we got a flashback to junior year of university. Oh um, man, way back. It is a little ways back. I was um, <laughs> studying technical communication at the University of North Texas here in Denton, um, beautiful college town in North Texas. And I remember it very distinctly. Um, I think I was in between classes. Um, I was sitting um, just on a little swing on campus, eating probably some tuna salad. For some reason, I was throwing down a lot of tuna salad in university, a habit <laughs> that I have not carried into my adult life. Um, <laughs> but every, um, every lunch break during university, I would listen to um, Chris Boyd's um, Think segments on uh, KERA. It's our local NPR station. And this particular day, Chris was interviewing Charles Montgomery, um, who was the soon-to-be author of uh, Happy City. I think it was like two weeks before that book was to come out. And um, they had this great conversation about cities, how it helps with public health, people's well-being. And I just became obsessed like i had never really thought about cities in that way i grew up in a an affluent suburb in north texas used to just you know driving everywhere hitting the taco bell drive-thrus for some chalupas and never really considered what it meant to live not only in a city but in a city that you know boosts your own well-being your own health um so from there you know i dove into happy city later picked up death and life of great american cities Oh, yeah, the strong towns. Yeah. So, I mean, Charles Montgomery was huge in my journey into, you know, urbanism. And then from there, just picked up a lot of other great resources along the way. And it's 
it's been a joy. It's a really, really fun field to be into, not only um, one to um, pursue professionally as I have, but also just to be a fan of cities and just to be an observer of um, what makes them livable places as you've done. Um, it's a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. Absolutely. So what I hear from you is that it became really, you're able to connect it on a personal level and see how it affects you in ways that you weren't originally, right? You would just move among your city, not really thinking about it. And then all of a sudden it struck you in a completely different way. Oh, that's exactly right. I mean, it completely changed is how I walked around the neighborhood. Like now, me and my partner go for a lot of walks around the neighborhood, and I mean, we notice architecture differently. We observe sidewalks differently. We observe, you know, the landscape, just every part of you know the built environment and where we as people fit in it, um, completely transformed. That's awesome. What do you notice the most when you're walking around with your partner? Oh, great question, Jim. Um, I'm always looking for. Um, mix in housing types. So I'm a sucker for, you know, walking in that neighborhood, narrow streets, wide sidewalks, and a beautiful mix of single family homes, duplexes, fourplexes, maybe a single family home with an ADU in the back. I'm a sucker for that mostly because, you know, I see this and I know, you know, my, my boy who maybe serves me coffee down the block can live in this neighborhood. Um, you know, maybe my former professor at UNT can live in this neighborhood. Um, so anytime I can observe a, a neighborhood that allows for mix of incomes, mix of interests, all able to inhabit the same place, I mean, that's what gets me really excited. If, if you ask my partner, um, it'd be um, just diversity in garden. She loves just to stop and observe different kinds of flowers, take photos, sniff them a little bit. We have a, a neighbor down the block. Um, on Mount Street, maybe about two minute walk. Um, every day we walk the same route up to their home, and then uh, eventually became friends with the owner. His name's Randy. And then one day Randy was like, "Hey, do you want to walk through my garden? Like, I'll lead you on a tour." I noticed you stopping and looking at my flowers every day. Oh. Would you like to come on a tour? And That's then, awesome. So he led us through his garden, pointing out oh, wow. everything that he'd grown. Ended up, give, ended up giving us some like fig lavender jam. Oh, that wow. was that he made from the garden. So, um, what an honor! Yeah, it really was an honor. I'll, I'll probably have some of that jam for lunch after this. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. I must be hungry too. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's awesome. I mean, that that kind of you're segueing into the next thing I was thinking about. Of you were you were alluding to some of what I think are are characteristics of a livable place to you. But why don't you share a little bit about? about that, what you think about that, what what really defines a livable place? Yeah, good question, Jim. Um, personally, I would define a livable city as a compilation of what Strongtown's member Andrew Price would call complete neighborhoods. So no matter where I choose to live, am I able to achieve the day's needs in my neighborhood? I like to call it living on a neighborhood level. So Ooh, I like if, that. if I'm in a neighborhood where, you know, I can do the maybe the most grandiose thing of, you know, maybe getting some some high end craft beer, but also able to like <laughs> get like toilet paper, dry cleaning. Today my partner and I went to the laundromat and did our laundry. I kid you not, we hop on our little Honda Ruckus 
to do our laundry. That's how that's living on a neighborhood level right there. We don't have to <laughs> don't have to fill up a Subaru or anything. Um, but that that's how we define um, a livable city: is a compilation of people able to do life in the neighborhood in which they live. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what r- really gets me excited about um, the prospects of building more livable cities. Is that mm-hmm. hey, let's just go neighborhood by neighborhood and help people be able to do what they can in the neighborhood in which they live. Enrich them, right? So mm-hmm. make the built form of the neighborhood enrich in all of our lives. That's right. And it, it's cool. Um, I think about Alyssa Walker. Um, she's the editor over at Curbed. Um, she likes to call this her walking shed. So take where you live, and then I think it's maybe a mile. I'd have to look back at what, how she described it. But I think within a mile of where you live is your walking shed. And she challenges people, hey, like if you want to live on a neighborhood level, see how many of the days needs you can achieve within your walking shed. Um, and I've tried that out too in my own experiences here in downtown Denton. And it's been cool what needs I can achieve here that I wouldn't have otherwise if I wasn't actively seeking them out. Like, for example, I didn't know that my corner store, where I usually just bought craft beer and paper towels, also sells notebooks. I love the journal, so now I get my notebooks there. Oh, it sells contact solution. I don't have to go to CBS um, down the road anymore. I can walk across, across the street to Midway Mart. Hmm. Um, so a lot of really cool um, just kind of takeaways whenever hmm. we actively see, okay, what's in our walking shed? And it might feel a little weird at first, like why am I buying like contact solution at a corner store? Um, but in this concept of you know living on a neighborhood level, living in a livable place um, could be really eye-opening. Yeah. How does that change you? I mean, what what's wrong with buying your contact solution from CVS or maybe wrong is the w- wrong word, but you know, what, what is meaningful to you about using a local store in your neighborhood? Yeah. Um, so I guess focusing on the livability aspect of it, um, I think what also makes a livable place is a place that's full of, um, I think what researchers call soft connections. So with Midway Mart's like my go-to corner store, now that I know that I can get way more than just beer there, I'm rolling up for sponges, contact solution, paper towels. Suddenly I have a familiar face that says, Hey Jacob, like what's going on? Like every time I go in there, it's the same two or three people on staff. And because, you know, there's a familiar face, they welcome me as I walk in. I end up getting a much greater sense of attachment to where I live. I mean, I was even joking with Madi, my partner. I said, Hey, like if, if, I won't say if we get married, she wouldn't like if I said that. When we get married, <laughs> um, I've joked that, hey, like I'm going to invite Sean, the guy who runs the corner store, to be a groomsman. I- is he a homie? Is he a great friend? No. But like just his compassion and willingness to like say hello and ask how I am every time I see him. It's like That's so a huge great. part of like why I love where I, where I live. Oh um, my gosh. And that, I like that. Yeah. And that, I mean, if you talk about strong towns, it's, we talk a lot about land use, making sure we're making the best use of the land um, within our cities because, you know, land is a, is a finite resource. Let's make the most of it. Let's not dedicate all of it to, you know, seas of parking or huge suburban lots. Um, yes. When we pay attention to land use, we can have a lot of cool things in our neighborhoods, a great mix of services. A lot more people like Sean um, that we can see every day and say hello to and inquire about our lives even if it's brief it's very important 
Absolutely. Um, if I could, I would give you the Urbanist of the Year award for uh, including that uh, clerk in your wedding. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, it's not. It's not out of the picture. <laughs> it, it, it's absolutely not. And if he were to maybe cater, bring some discounts from working with his beer distributors, um, I think it might be a nice event. <laughs> I love that. But it, it captures it perfectly, I think. Um, you know, we're laughing at it, um, but it's meaningful. You know, I think we're, we're so used to, especially if we've grown up in the suburbs of the United States um, or, or other places that have emulated this style of uh, development, we're used to planning everything. Mm-hmm. Right, I'm going to be here. Then at ten, I'm going to be there. Then at two, I'm going to be here. And you use your car and you go from point A to point B, and you're really only getting to know those people at those specific places. You don't really have a chance of getting to know anybody along the way, and you've really taken out a lot of one of my favorite words, serendipity. Uh, uh, that was the word I was saying in my head as you were describing that, Jim. <laughs> Same word. You're, you're exactly right. I mean, it's it's so funny what we discover. Whenever we choose to opt for, you know, the bike or um, just our own two feet or the scooter, where we have some folks scootering these days. I mean, mm-hmm. just semi recently, I was biking downtown. I sneezed. A pedestrian said, "Bless you." Like <laughs> that. That was weird, but like I was like super into it. Like if but I how, sneezed in my car, I'm not going to find yeah. that connection. <laughs> how humanizing, though, right? Yeah, as opposed it's great. to. Sneezing and feeling like your life is at risk, or someone like yeah. that, or you're like, you know, uh, super skeptical of those around you. Yeah. Instead, a neighbor says, Bless you. And I think yeah. I said, Thank you. And then went on to get a margarita. <laughs> I promise I don't drink too much. I've talked a lot about alcohol in this episode. <laughs> you um, <have>. But <laughs> it is p- part, of, part of my journey downtown. We have a lot of. Um, a lot of great amenities, including some some great places to grab a drink, alcoholic or not. <laughs> that might tends to be the former more often. <laughs> I'll include include a helpline number in the notes <laughs> for you. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so you work for Strong Towns uh, officially, mm-hmm. professionally. You advocate for more financially resilient towns and cities. For our listeners who aren't you know super familiar or familiar at all with Strong Towns, why does it matter? And how do you think it directly impacts the livability, livability of a place? Man, I, I think Strong Towns President Charles Marone says it best in his book, Strong Towns, The Bottom of Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. I mean, he describes and says that an insolvent city, so a city that does not obsess about finances, let its expenses exceed its revenue, well, you know, it'll, it'll linger on performing its functions likely very poorly, um, failing to serve its residents. And the mm-hmm. result is, you know, we have a huge backlog of deferred maintenance. We'll see um, our roads start to deteriorate. Um, we'll see our infrastructure really struggle, especially underground. Um, as we've seen, you know, in, in, Flint, in Flint, Michigan, with um, their water crisis, if we're not obsessing about our municipal finance, making sure that our revenue exceeds our expenses so that we can actually maintain these places that we love um we will see a lot of cities struggle so then how that relates to you know building livable places i mean what i consider a livable place is a place where you know i can easily walk around the neighborhood as i said before i can easily achieve the day's needs in my neighborhood neighborhood without you know having to hop in the whip so if we have a city that is obsessing that's it's municipal finance it's got plenty of revenue 
we're able to build these places that we love. We're able to, you know, put in sidewalks, able to build bike lanes, yes. um, able to have, you know, as Andrew Price calls, complete neighborhoods. Hmm. Um, so tremendous correlation between strong towns and how we focus on building financially resilient places and building livable places. And one that really struck me when I started off at Strong Towns, um, we found that walkable places, which of course are livable places, are also um, the most um, financially productive. So you compare, you know, take my neighborhood, downtown Denton, mixed-use neighborhood, Nala parking, just a lot of, you know, narrow streets, wide sidewalks, and a ton of businesses. Compare that to you know, the Walmart on the edge of town, though it might look like a big economic development win for the city, compare the two, compare their value per acre, tax revenue generated per acre, and the former like balls out, like like considerably generates more tax revenue per acre. And and how cool is that for people who get into um, you know, get get into cities? Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of us, um, unless you're like a tax account person. Like we love cities and we love livable places because they're just, I mean, they're fun. Like how cool is it that I can just like walk down the street to get a taco, get a drink, get a coffee, check out the bookstore. But then to find out that, oh, this place that I love is also like better for my city's pocketbook. Like that's like a really exciting revelation. Right. It's like connecting the good feeling parts with the hard data. Yeah, and that's that's huge for people because I'll kid you not, Jen. Like before I got into strong towns, like the hard data like spooked me, man. Like I was <laughs> very like resistant. Like I just loved places just like for loving them. Yeah. Um, but then to find out that um, the places I love are actually, you know, a big win for um, the city's balance sheet um, was was really helpful for me. Absolutely. Um, and I think they're also meaningful because, you know, at the end of the day, as I like to say, I've said this before on other episodes, cities, towns where people collect together, it's exactly about that people, right? So cities and towns do not exist unto themselves for the, for the sake of themselves. They exist to connect people. And if we've essentially like spread everything out and we've, um, also spread the wealth out, um, where it's too thin to sustain yep. itself, that is not a strong place. That is not a strong town. Oh, that's exactly right, Jim. And Chuck mentions this in his book. Take the most like altruistic, like in, important organizations, whether it's you know an orphanage or an animal shelter. These places still need to have their revenue exceed their expenses if they want to continue to operate. And cities should be responding the same way. Understand that, yeah, we're still taking care of our people taking care of all of our public services. We still need to be making sure that we're generating revenue. Um, and sadly, a lot of cities um, don't pay attention to this. They fall into um, what we have strong times called the growth Ponzi scheme, where um, they'll keep building something new and hoping that the revenue from that takes care of all of their existing um, deferred maintenance when um, that's not the case. It just they get deeper and deeper in debt. So we to in- encourage people to build livable places, we absolutely have to be building financially resilient places simultaneously. And most of the time, that's how it ends up working out. Yeah, absolutely. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we don't naturally um, build very livable places these days, at least yeah, in the US? I-, I think it's just, it's against the status quo. I mean, since um, 
the automobile with highways. I mean, a livable place or a place that people preferred was one um, where they can move about in their vehicles. But we're seeing, you know, a shift in people's priorities. People are, want more livable, walkable places. However, whenever we look at the zoning code, um, it becomes challenging, um, if not illegal, um, yes. for cities to actually build your places. I mean, you look at yes. your downtown with um, wide sidewalks, really um, small setbacks where I can go right from the sidewalk to the store. Um, this is illegal in many places, mostly because of parking minimums. Yeah. Where if you wanted to, you know, build that corner store in your downtown, um, you know that you don't necessarily need a lot of parking because say your downtown already has um, an existing, you know, neighborhoods, a great customer base that you want to serve. Yet a lot of places with parking minimums, you're going to be required to build X amount of parking spots, which could add easily. I mean, we've seen up to cases of a couple hundred grand um, that's added to your bill and that will either, you know, what we'll see a lot of times, block the development. You'll see that person who wanted to contribute to their neighborhood, maybe saw a gap and understood that their neighbors needed a place to get groceries or get whatever a corner store serves. Um, that development won't happen because of parking minimums. Yeah. So if people want to build more livable places, um, as strong towns, we really the first thing we think people can do um, is end parking minimums. And it's a timely conversation too. Here in a little bit, Strong Times will have its Black Friday parking event. Oh, I love where, that event. Yeah, it's the best time of year where we encourage all of our readers and members to go out and photograph parking lots on Black Friday, which is supposed to be the most popular day for shopping. You'll be surprised what you see. <laughs> and I, I won't spoil it, um, <laughs> but I encourage you to take a look for yourself and you'll figure out that you know, maybe these parking minimums are making people build a little too much parking, maybe more than we need. A little too much, yep. Um, I also like to think that, uh, you know, a place that that is building, um, or, you know, a place that can't build that more humble little, like, few shops on the bottom and a few uh, residences on top, mm-hmm. instead they're required to either not build, build a parking lot, or build enormous, right? It's us- In the U.S., yeah. at least, it's usually one of those. Yep. Um, you're essentially building places that inherently are disconnecting from people, right? Because they're a parking lot doesn't connect people by definition. No. Nor does nor generally do those mega developments because they're usually financed from I don't know some international financier or Wall Street or something like that. And again, it's 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 just like a large corporation. It's all about the bottom line instead of what's best in this small little context. It's it's very devoid of that. Oh, absolutely, Jim. And this is where I love to talk about the Incremental Development Alliance. Um, this is a great nonprofit that helps people become small-scale developers. Um, and listeners, if you're unfamiliar with that term, um, a great example is you know you live in your neighborhood. You see, hey, like um, I would like to provide some more affordable housing. So maybe um, you try to build a duplex. Um, so that's what the Incremental Development tries to do: is give people the capacity to build those places that they want. And they have this really cool process where they start with, you know, first find your farm. So your farm is the place where you live and it's the place that you love. It's the place that you want to nurture. So say you find your farm, for me it's downtown Denton. The next step is as you're going about your daily life, 
seeing, you know, what are the voids? What are the gaps? What, what idea do I have where I can develop something to serve this neighborhood, whether it's, um, you know, some multifamily housing, a corner store, a coffee shop or whatever, um, and then end up building that product. Um, but sadly, um, whenever we look at, you know, really stringent permit processes, really intense um, mandated regulations, it's hard for, you know, the people who actually love where they live to contribute to it. And like you said, the result is often, you know, settling for corporations to provide a lot of services that, you know, our neighbors could probably pull off. Right. Because all of a sudden they're the only ones that can afford to build something, right? That's and to right. go through the process and and have the lawyer team to wade through the legal issues and all that kind of stuff. Like yes. they're literally the only people then that can build things. Yes. Or or it remains a parking lot. Mm-hmm. And, and it's detrimental to our neighborhoods, Jim. It absolutely is. But yeah. we have some great people who are fighting back and taking some really great steps to build Strong Towns. I think about Strong Towns member Andres Diaz out of Peoria, Illinois. Um, he's Strong Towns member and then also attended um, Incremental Development Alliance Workshop. And I kid you not, like he found his, his farm. He lives in an uh, urban neighborhood in Peoria, Illinois. He observed that his neighbors didn't have access to healthy food. So, you know, in, in Strong Tense Mantra, we really embrace incrementalism. So, you know, he could have maybe gone straight from idea to, you know, signing a five-year lease to open up a health, health food store. But what yeah. he did, he started doing some urban gardens, had about a dozen of those throughout his neighborhood. People were digging it, providing healthy food to his peers. Eventually, he garnered enough uh, just buzz with his urban gardens and then ended up doing this weekly um, open-air market, which he calls the springboard market um, in his neighborhood where he invites entrepreneurs out to come like pitch a little uh, canopy thing. There might be a better word for that. Um, but they set up a spot, sell their product, kind of like a farmer's market. Um, and then the result is you have all these like newborn entrepreneurs like people selling tamales people selling stuff that they make at home um really cool example of what happens whenever we you know give our residents our strong citizens um you know the motivation and the capacity to contribute to where they live we see a lot of really cool projects come out of it that doesn't require any tax incentives which is also noted yeah i love that what i what i like about that what i want to point out is how different that is um it's it's something that's just very organic, right? It doesn't take really an approval process. It's one person saying, "Hey, I see a need. I want to fill it. I'm going to go do it because yeah. it aligns with my passions and and uh, I want to make where I live better." And they just go and do it. And how much stronger is that than you know? So again, some mega corporation or some nameless entity coming in and doing something that uh, they never ask the locals what they actually want. That's right. It, 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 the former is so much stronger, especially financially, too. I mean, we'll get to a point if we, we block so many small-scale developers from developing, we may have to give tax incentives to have this corporation come in and build because we're so desperate at this point, as opposed to you know if we can put systems in place that allow small-scale developers to thrive. You're A, filling those voids in your neighborhood without having to give out any tax incentives. It's huge. Yeah, that's so strong. And so livable. I mean, mm-hmm. it just is. It's connecting of people inherently. It is. And give people a sense of ownership. I mean, that's it's a phrase we use on um, 
as little things, a a podcast I host on Strong Towns all the time. And whenever cities can give people the capacity to implement their ideas, I mean, that is huge for place attachment, huge for livability to be able to look at your neighborhood and say, hey, I contributed in this way or that way, or I inspired my peers to do this or that. Um, The essential elements of building a livable place. Yeah, indeed. Um, So on the same theme, really, of empowering people to do what they can do, how do you approach community building as as the community builder of Strong Towns? How do you get them both inspired and empowered to advocate for their places? Yeah, good question. Um, So once... I guess there's two approaches. If someone is discovering Strong Towns for the very first time, we of course want them to read some like some greatest hits of the Strong Town sites where they can kind of pick up on this language of financial resiliency. What, yeah. once, they, once they can kind of picture it, we also encourage them to take the Strong Town Strength Test. Um, this is a 10-question test um, that you can achieve just by stepping outside your front door and thinking about your own city. Um, it's a really cool way to actually conceptualize what we're talking about. Um, and maybe Jim can put that in the show notes. Um, it's just, I think it's just strongtowns.org slash strength test. I'd be happy to. So once they're able to understand what it means to build a strong towns, see how it re- relates to their place, what we do as strong towns with community building is try to get our members and readers just having honest conversations with each other about the state of their neighborhoods. Um, I like to call this cheap talk. Uh, it's a concept coined by um, Eleanor Ostrom, where you know we're not necessarily following a strict agenda. Um, it's not necessarily an authority figure or someone leading the conversation. But if we can foster places where people feel comfortable um, just to be real and honest and share the struggles that they observe in their neighborhood, that's where strong towns can start to thrive. Um, so for example, if a recent interaction, the Strong Towns community site, we had a gentleman out of Cambridge um, write and say, you know, I, I live, I think it's Harvard Square is the neighborhood that he lives in. He said, um, one of my neighbors um, was hit by a car and killed. And it was a tragic story. Yeah, um, so f- tragic. From it, the action that he wanted to take um, was to plan some kind of um, intervention using tackle urbanism. So he reached out to the Strong Towns community site, shared that really sobering story, said, hey, do y'all have any tips um, on steps that I could take um, to do some kind of demonstration to slow the cars on this street? And it's a beautiful site. Um, if you look back at that thread, you'll see about um, eight or ten folk who have done comparable projects sharing their insights. Um, and I haven't since followed up with the gentleman who um, originally shared that post um, but from what I observed, really great action items. Hmm. So with community building, we're not trying to build you know, experts. We don't want you to be able to recite your zoning code. It's cool if you can, if you have that personality. But <laughs> that's not our goal. You don't have to recite your 2000 or whatever master plan. Our only prerequisite is that you care about your place, you're willing to observe where it struggles, and then share those struggles with the community. Um, that's the theme we've recently adopted at Strong Towns, um, and it's been really beautiful to see it unfold. Um, it happens in the Strong Towns community site, as I mentioned, and then also our Facebook group. Um, two great platforms to really see this in action. Um, so that I mean, that sounds so strong. And what I like about it is you're connecting um, 
community people to each other. Like you said, you're not trying to build experts um, per se and have them on file, but you know, you're connecting people who say, Hey, I, I've got some ideas around how to do that. And uh, I'll take you under my wing and maybe we can come up with something that's super strong for where you live. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, at strong towns, we would just want to boost people's capacity to take action. Um, we kind of get them in the door with the blog, um, and then as they're pondering ways that they can make their own town stronger, um, the community sites are a really great place for that. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Um, so, Jacob, so how do you how do you feel each person can contribute to being the change that they want to see where they live? Oh, great question, and one that aligns well with what we talk a lot about: strong towns. You know, we're try our best to build what we call strong citizens, people who love where they live and want to do what they can um, to make it more financially resilient. And I think there's a lot of steps um, that folk can take. You know, of course, anyone can run for perhaps a city council position. Um, they can serve on a citizen committee. Um, but really what we advocate for as strong towns, whether it's private or public investment, if someone feels overwhelmed or doesn't feel like they can, um, you know, really contribute to making their place stronger, we have a really simple process. We just say, humbly observe where you live, observe where people struggle, and do the next smallest thing to repeat to address that struggle, and repeat. So again, thinking back to this gentleman in Cambridge, he observed, of course, through a tragedy we didn't want to happen, but he observed that hey, this street in my neighborhood is really dangerous. Of course, I want the city to intervene. It'd be great if they could perhaps redesign the street, widen the sidewalks, narrow the street. But in the meantime, I'm going to try to do some tackle urbanism. I'm going to try to get a posse together to slow down this street. And I think this should be really refreshing and encouraging for listeners because you don't need to have like a grand scheme or a master plan to make your place stronger. Really, it's just a series of small bets. Yes. So like our boy Andres Diaz in Peoria, he observed that his neighborhood didn't have a place for his neighbors to get access to healthy food. You know, I'm not going to sign a five-year lease and try to open up a supermarket. I'm just going to start a few urban gardens on some empty plots of land and see how the neighborhood responds. You know, um, and the same goes for public investments as well. You know, if you identify a dangerous street, maybe don't be so quick to do a redesign. What are some tackle urbanism things we can do to slow the cars? You know, can we just set up some cones? Can we do like a temporary roundabout? Can we do, um, you know, put down some cones to create a temporary bike lane? It's kind of changing the culture of what investment and contribution to our cities looks like. It doesn't look like master plans and task forces it looks like just a bunch of people making a bunch of small bets yeah and then iterating based on how um the residents respond yeah and that that's what makes the place financially resilient you know whenever we commit to big master projects you know they look really good on paper probably have some really sexy diagrams people are getting excited but say we implement that and spend millions of dollars to do so if it doesn't work out, like that sucks, man. <laughs> like that's going to be a blow um, for your balance sheet. That's not going to be a a project. Yeah, um, that builds community wealth. Right, it's super um, leveraged in every every meaning of that word. That's right. So, for listeners, if you're looking for a way to contribute 
Like take a walk around the block, see where your neighbors are struggling. Are they struggling to, you know, cross the street? Have you conversed with folk and learned um, that, you know, which I can think of other examples. We'll continue the healthy food one. I think about my own experiences. Um, in addition to working for strong towns, I'm also a volunteer community health worker. And I recently joined um, the Southeast Denton Neighborhood Association um, meeting as a community health worker. And they're fantastic at having just these honest conversations about their place. You know, I learned that, you know, there's, there's a crack house two doors down. And thankfully, the city understands that these are the types of groups that we need to engage with if we really want to address quality of life issues. Um, and that has been resolved with people um, sharing how their kids have to stay up late at night because motorcyclists are driving through the neighborhood all times of the night, revving their engines. And this is a historically disinvested neighborhood that we need to be showing some love to. But it's great whenever, you know, if we can just find ourselves in a place, just have honest conversations about our neighborhoods and then do the next smallest things to address where we struggle. Um, we'll be well on our way to creating stronger places. And why, why is that inherently stronger? Why not just, you know, sit there and lobby uh, effectively your, your council person or your mayor or whatever to, and have them do it, right? They're getting paid to do that. They're the professionals. Why, sure. why can we do it? Why should we do it? And I, I will say that um, what you've introduced actually, you know, perhaps having um, a coalition and having, you know, like an interest group engaged in like targeted activities, um, that's incredibly important as well. But for just the citizen with private investment, um, I think it's a great two-pronged approach. Like, of course, let's maybe get some kinfolk together. Maybe we're advocating for, you know, um, better bike infrastructure. Maybe we're advocating um, for building more walkable places. That's great. So let's complement, um, you know, these targeted activities with actually demonstrating our vision. Yes. I think if we want to change um, local policy, I think that's a really great combo. Like, Let's have a group that shares this goal and we're sharing it with our elected officials but let's also demonstrate these small bets and show that, hey, like whenever we talk about building, you know, more bikeable places, we're not talking about a bike superhighway that's going to cost you millions of dollars. Can we just like get a demarcated lane and let's just try some cones first and see if people dig it? Um, it's really not complex, but it is breaking from the status quo and just understanding that we need to make small bets, not, you know, um, the super projects that may not work out. Yeah, indeed. And I think we've... Um we're no longer used to um, kind of owning where we live and what's around it. You know, we're used to pushing that off to somebody. So, you know, these taking sure. taking these small little steps. And I and a key point that you hit on was, um, you know, or that you at least inferred was uh, connecting to what's around you. Like observe. Like don't yeah. don't try and do something that's in theory or removed. You know, by um, you know, there's like a big big uh, urbanist following on Twitter um, that can get a little abstract and a little removed from actual reality. Sometimes just get yeah. involved, know some, get to know some people. That is the strongest and quickest way to making your place stronger. That's right. And there's a ton of success stories. I mean, I think about a recent guest on this little thing, Steve McDool out of London, Ontario. He had a buddy whose neighborhood it's just single family, but he really wanted to have like a coffee shop or provide a place for his neighbors to get coffee. So every Friday morning, he opens up the garage, serves coffee to all of his neighbors. Now he has about 50 folk rolling up every Friday. 
oh, coffee wow. shop in a neighboring uh, neighborhood now gives them free coffee beans to roast with. And again, th- these are like, like not risky, but like scary things to do based on your personality. Oh, yeah. Like we're all excellent observers. Anyone who loves the city is a great observer. Yep. But it, it's hard to take action. It is. Um, but that's why these small bets can be much more, you know, reaffirming isn't the right word, but maybe perhaps more comforting. Like, hey, I'm just going to try this out. Let's see if my peers dig it. If they do, let's keep at it. If not, we'll iterate. Yeah, it's a it's a very humble position too that you have to come from, and and we're not always the best at that. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to um, try something and you know see it fail. Right, it takes a lot yeah. of uh, inner strength to say, "I believe in this. I want to try and continue to do this, even if this first go kind of failed." Definitely, and that's why it's so important to have you know your posse. Yes. Like, what are a few folk who are also into this idea that I have to address a struggle in my neighborhood? Oh, great point. And, and it's cool. Um, there's a recent study from UC Berkeley um, that compared, you know, what's what has a greater influence on, you know, what passes in local policy, um, you know, voter turnout or non-political participation, and they found that the latter has far greater influence on local policy. So yes, it's great to go out and vote. That's a great way to be engaged with your city and influence policy. But what ends up being much more effective is having that posse in your neighborhood that has this shared goal and has very targeted activities. So again, continuing this theme of building livable places. Say I want to have make my neighborhood more walkable. Um, I would maybe consider um, a few tactical urbanism projects I can do. Um, maybe some Temporary crosswalks, um, which don't cost that much, or maybe a, a cross crossing guard for a day. Um, <laughs> research has found that that's what influences policy um, more so than actually, um, you know, traditional political participation, which is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. You're getting involved. Yeah. You're getting connected. People know you, and they're much right. much more likely to trust you. And trust, I think, is the key word here. Yeah, I feel you. From your experience with strong towns, you know what what tends to get in the way of people when they're when they're trying these things out or they they want to right yeah in terms of financial resiliency and looking at municipal finance i mean what strong towns advocates is sadly as logical as it is very much against the status quo you know we it's it's traditional to think of you know growth as an idea of success like, oh, we're building more streets, we're building more roads, we're building more highways, more subdivisions. This must be success. We must be thriving, or, you know, especially with economic development. And every, every city and town, no matter their size, we're so quick to associate economic development wins with, you know, scoring that big box store, which 99% of the time um, requires a huge tax incentive. Yeah. So, and then thinking that success requires a master plan, a comprehensive plan, a, a massive several hundred page document that yeah. somehow predicts the future of our places yep. for the next 30 that's years. What, that's right. And, and it's, it's incredibly fragile. And that does not leave room for just the actual lived experience and have these complex systems. So, I think that's where people, you know, have the most difficult time understanding strong towns is that i mean we're advocating for a completely different way of development yeah we're saying oh you want to have more businesses downtown be like muskegon michigan 
build 12 small sheds and then have entrepreneurs rent them out for like a couple hundred bucks to test out their idea. Yeah. Someone would be like, like, what, what is that? Like, like that's, that's not economic development. Right. But turns out, oh, like the salonist is killing it. She may move into that vacant storefront. Oh, this guy who, I don't know, th- this, this coffee roaster is, has a really great product. Maybe he will end up opening a coffee shop downtown. That's building strong towns, not just throwing money to try mm-hmm. to you know, fill empty spaces in our cities. I love it. It's like the lowest risk place incubator you know concept that you could possibly come up with and it's that's right it's super strong because just like just like a startup incubator startups can come in they got a little bit of uh resources they could try their idea if they're a great success they grow up and then they grow out um into their own place but otherwise they go away and the same thing needs to be able to happen with our places that's right and our and our cities can do it they can revisit their zoning code to allow um, you know more stronger projects like this, I think Charles Montgomery says it best in his book Happy City. Like he changed the code, you changed the city. Um, a great call to action for our city leaders. You know, hey, you want to have greater economic development, you want to have more walkable places, you want to have more livable places. Let's make it easier for the entrepreneur to test out an idea. Let's make it easier for a developer to build housing, to build that corner store, to build that coffee shop. Um, it'll be well on our way to building stronger places. Yeah create the next generation of places that many people will connect with each other in. That's right. And I think something that should be reaffirming for folk who are discovering strong times for the first time, like we're not saying that you should just ditch everything that you're doing. Strong towns does not have like this grand scheme that you need to adopt. You don't have a five point plan that applies to every city. There's not a course you can take that automatically makes you more financially resilient. Um, place with more financial resilience minded leaders we're just saying hey like observe your built environment what are just some small bets you can take to adjust um, struggles that your people have it's gonna look small at first like a tackle urbanism project oh you painted some crosswalks like cool big win it's not going to appear on the front page of your local newspaper it's not going to be followed by a ribbon cutting but if you repeat these small bets in every neighborhood within your city or town, that's how we're going to build strong towns. Yeah. Again, it's not sexy. It's not. But in the end, whenever your revenue is exceeding your expenses, you're able to maintain places. As Steve Muzan says, you build places that, that are lovable, that people want to contribute to. Yeah. Um, that's a strong town. And that's so much stronger and more rewarding in the long run than any rib- ribbon cutting ceremony, right? Because you're, you're creating a place that you get the prize. You get to participate in the prize. You get to live there. You get to know these people. You get to be known. It's a place that you love and you feel connected. Yeah, I think a, a big part about building a strong town is a place where people have a sense of place attachment um, I think that happens both when it, best whenever you have um, a sense of ownership and you're, you're co-creating your place. Indeed. So somebody's, you know, say somebody's super fired up. They've got something like that example you gave of the person um, who had a, a very dangerous uh, street in Harvard Square. Somebody died. They feel fired up. They want to do something. They might even have something specific in mind. Um, what's the very first thing you would recommend that they do? Man, share that idea with a neighbor. Share that idea with a friend. I mean, I think there's so many great ideas 
um, in this country, people, you know, maybe they're taking a shower and an idea just slips into their mind. Um, it's an idea that can likely make your place very strong, but too often we don't share it. Mm. You know, it, it kind of remains just like a narrative fallacy. We like picture ourselves doing it and that's enough and we never actually make it happen. So the moment that neighborhood boosting idea comes to mind, share it with a friend. Try to build that tribe of people who share this vision that you have. And re- remember that they don't have to be, you know, strong towns advocates. They don't have to be livable city advocates. They just have to understand that like, hey, like, I want to build a place where my neighbors aren't dying in the streets because of our infrastructure. Yeah. If we can kind of have that shared goal and then just do the next smallest thing, mm. you know, um, whether that's, you know, setting up some cones. I, I'm uncertain what this gentleman ended up doing in Harvard Square. Um, but just think of the next smallest thing we can do to address that struggle and then get your elected officials involved and, and invite them to a meeting. Um, Strong Town Sioux Falls, um, one of our local conversations does a great job of this. They meet every Wednesday morning at a coffee shop in downtown Sioux Falls. And they just discuss the community and its current state um, and how it can become more financially resilient. And then with the consistency of them meeting, a lot of elected officials have ended up joining, a lot of small business owners. They've ended up throwing community potlucks. They have something called Citizen Taco, where Jordan, the primary organizer, uh, makes a bunch of tacos in a crock pot and then invites the community to come out. And his challenge for them is, okay, you can eat my free tacos <laughs> so long as you share one idea that you can accomplish in 30 days and go do it. That is so He's awesome. Not, it's dope, man. He's knocked out like a half dozen citizen tacos. A lot of great success stories have come from it. Um, one that comes to mind is a gentleman who's since done sidewalk seminars. This is a man in his early 70s lives in Sioux Falls and every now and then, you know, he'll just stay in his driveway and just like start talking about things. And I kid you not, you look at these photos, Jim, there are people rolling up with their lawn chairs, sitting on the sidewalk, engaging in conversation with this gentleman. I don't really know what they talk about. (laughs) I think it's just like really fringe topics, but like what a low lift way to have better community engagement. You know, we don't have to reserve community engagement for uh, council chambers this guy's knocking now in his driveway and people are driving their lawn chairs and engaging with him. Um, so the person who's fired up, I mean, in, ensure that like your idea is inspired by an observation that you've made. Um, that should be the first thing. Ensure that you're pursuing something that your community needs. Um, share it with some peers and think of some low lift demonstrations and then you'll be, um, that's a great next step to building stronger places. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I think we'll we'll leave it there. You said it best. Um, so as we come to a close on this conversation, which has been a lot of fun, by the way, uh, any final thoughts you want to leave with our listeners? Um, if they aren't familiar with Strong Towns and you're inspired by this idea of perhaps finding a tribe in your community um, that has this shared goal of building stronger, more livable places, um, I just encourage everyone to check out strongtowns.org slash local. Um, we run a program called Local Conversations. These are groups of readers and members who meet either online or in person um, to discuss how the Strong Towns movement relates to their place. Um, Jim, host of Livable City, <laughs> is a primary organizer of one of our local conversations, Strong Towns Indie. 
I'm kind of the OG yes. of the group. They've done a lot of great work. <laughs> OG. Um, but we, we, have, we have 88 of these. Oh, wow. Um, I love that. All across North America. So it's exploded. Um, it, it really has. So if you're looking for a posse, check out that map. Really kind, generous group of people that would love for you to kick it with them, engage in these conversations. But that's it. Like if you're listeners, if you're interested in this, how financial resiliency relates to building livable places, um, check out strongtowns.org. It's a great resource. Yes. Um, I will second that. We'd love to have you. Yeah. I will second that. There is so much good material in there. If you've never visited the site, it, I, I like to call it the black hole of urbanism. You will not come out of yeah. there for several days. That's well put. I think start off as a blog in 2008. And I think we've amassed about 12,000 blog posts. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's a lot. So no matter what you're interested in in relation to urbanism, yep. um, Strong Times probably has an article on it. Yep. And it, a lot of contents. I mean, you roll up on a Monday morning, say you're checking the site Monday through Friday. During that time span, you'll, you can read up between like 12 and 15 articles, three different podcast streams, publishing podcasts every week. A lot of great content to be inspired by. I love it. And how about for you personally? Where can people find your great work online? Yeah. Um, well, again, if you just want to learn more about the org, strongtowns.org, check it out. Um, if you want to connect with me personally, um, I'm on Twitter at Jacob Scott Moses. Um, I run a podcast um, with Strong Towns called It's Little Things. And every episode, we focus on a different action that people can take that make their city, town, or neighborhood stronger. Um, it's very timely for the latter part. Um, of this conversation we're at 50 episodes literally every episode is a different action so a lot of great stuff to look into and yeah that's about it if you want to interact with me on strong towns um, check out the strong towns facebook group we have a great great crew there and then the strong towns community site at community.strongtowns.org that's fantastic yeah um i'll second that you know like there's a lot of overlap in between what trying to do here with livable city and what strong towns is um that's not a coincidence so um definitely go check out strong towns work go check out um jacob's work and um like i said you'll be stuck in a black hole for days maybe even weeks that's right <laughs> and then share it with a friend and share it with a friend as ideas come to mind you're, you're gaining all this great new knowledge share it with the homie <laughs> yeah. well jacob it's been so much fun thank you so much for joining Thank you, Jim. This was a joy. Happy to join you. Keep up the great work. Thank you. We'll try. Um, And we'll have to do this again, hopefully. I'm down. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. That conversation got me seriously fired up and motivated to get out into my neighborhood. It makes me want to get busy meeting more people, having organic, honest conversations with my neighbors. I want to find out what my neighbors love about the neighborhood that we share together and the problem areas for them. I'm currently looking into joining the neighborhood association where I live, and I'm really excited about that. I'll be the first to admit that I often have trouble hearing what my neighbors think, clouded by my own desires for what I want to see be changed. But like Jacob said, forget about trying to create radical change with some grandmaster plan. Just show up and listen. Don't start by talking about your own grand vision. Get off of social media and online forums. They're not your friends for making change. Go meet some real people, and as Jacob says, go find your posse. Then ask questions, listen, learn, and take the next smallest action you can. Emphasis on smallest. Together as an experiment to see what's possible. 
This can include your local city and business leaders. Who are they? Have you met them before? Why not take a risk and buy your local council person a coffee? Can you start meeting on a weekly or a bi-weekly basis with people around you who become your friends and talk about the needs of your neighborhood together? Watch out that you don't get stuck in the trap of being overly philosophical. We'll all get a little bit farther if we drop our philosophies and our ideologies. Listen for what these new friends are saying their problems are about the neighborhood, and then honestly share the issues that you care about. And then after you really start to know these people over time, with much shared life together, start talking about doing something together. I hope you all have a wonderful holiday time and a very happy new year. I will see you all back here in 2020. Cheers.